Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are in the world. And welcome to today's Black Hat webcast, the third in our series, brought to you by Black Hat and United Business Media, LLC. I'm Steve Paul, and I'm your moderator today, stepping in for Jeff Moss, who's away in Singapore. We have just a few announcements before we begin. This webcast is designed to be interactive between you and our presenter. Later in the program, we'll ask for your feedback. Speaking of participation, you can participate in the Q&A session by asking questions at any time during the presentation. Just type your question into the Ask a Question text area below the media player, then click the Submit button. We will answer as many questions as time permits after the presentation. You may enlarge the slide window at any time by clicking on the Enlarge Slide button located below the presentation window. Slides will advance automatically throughout the event. You can also download a copy of the presentation by clicking on the Download Slide button below the presentation window. And at this time, we recommend you disable your pop-up blockers. If you're experiencing any technical problems, please visit our webcast help guide by clicking on the Help link below the video window. In addition, you can contact our technical support helpline, which is also located in the webcast help guide. And if you're having problems with slides advancing, please press F5 on your keyboard to refresh your console. And now on to the presentation. Today's guest is Alexander Sodorov, who was part of the presentation team for How to Impress Girls with Browser Memory Protection Bypasses at Black Hat USA 2008. The talk was well received at this event and also captured the attention of more than a few media outlets. We'd like to thank Alex for his participation, and we'd like to thank you all for listening and signing up and attending this webinar. This webinar is an experiment of sorts for Black Hat. As we grow this program, we're trying to see what kind of material our community is most interested in. This is the first time we've presented a Black Hat talk in its entirety. We hope that people who missed the talk when it was first presented will appreciate the chance to hear the presentation and get another chance to interact with our presenter. We're also working on establishing a third Thursday of every month as the Black Hat Webcast Day, so please make a mental note of that. And now over to Alex. Hello, everybody. My name is Alexander Sodorov, uh, and I will be talking about how to impress girls with browser memory protection bypasses. Unfortunately, uh, the other co-presenter from uh, Black Hat USA 2008, Mark Dow, couldn't be here um, because it's the middle of the night in his time zone. Um, so I will have to present this by myself, but hopefully you won't be disappointed. Uh, the slides that we're going to use are identical to the slides that we presented at uh, the Black Hat conference, so you won't be missing any content. So on to the presentation. Um, I'm sorry, my next slide doesn't seem to be advancing. Okay, it advanced very slowly. Sorry about that. Still trying to figure the system out. Alex, if you'd like to just um, let me know when uh, you get to the next slide. I did press the next button times and nothing happened. So after the introduction, would you like mm. to then go to the, um, the agenda? I'm trying to go to slide three. Okay. Well, there you go. Okay. 
So um, let's go over what we're going to uh, talk about in the next hour or so. Uh, this presentation is about bypassing the browser exploitation protections that Microsoft has been introducing starting with Windows XP Service Mac 2, uh, and they have significantly enhanced them with Windows Vista. So we're going to focus mostly on Windows Vista uh, because it contains the most complete implementation of these uh, protection systems. Uh, our main point is that while these protections are very effective at stopping uh, server-side exploits, they're not very good at protecting browsers from being exploited. Uh, in this presentation, we're going to start by covering the different protections, uh, explaining how they work, and what kind of attacks they're supposed to prevent. Then we're going to go on, on the techniques that we have discovered that allow attackers to bypass these protections. And finally, we're going to do a conclusion and talk a little bit about the uh, consequences of uh, this work. Uh, to accompany this talk, there is a, a full paper full paper available. Uh, it is uh, about 50 pages. Uh, it goes into a lot more detail than uh, can be covered in a one-hour talk. So uh, you're encouraged to download that paper and uh, read it at some point. We have more time. But this, uh, this presentation will give a uh, good overview of uh, what the paper is about. And Again, my next button doesn't seem to be working at all. I'll try to help out with you. So uh, just let me know if you want another slide. I'm going to just press the slide number four. Okay. Yeah, slide number four, please. So in addition to, uh, in addition to the VISTA exploitation, which was the primary objective of uh, our research, we also wanted to find out uh, how impressed girls would be with uh, this kind of work, uh, both Mark and me being young and single. Um, we did some field testing on this, and we do have some uh, photographic evidence to present. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, in this picture, you can see uh, our test subjects, and uh, they're not very impressed by us yet in this picture. But as we go on with the presentation, we will come back to them, and uh, we'll see how, uh, how impressed they get. Next slide. Next slide. So first we're going to start with uh, an overview of the protection features available in Windows Vista. Uh, on your screen you can see a table that displays the different kinds of protections that are available. With uh, red we have highlighted the protections that are missing. And you can see that in Windows uh, XP in the in, in the first versions of uh, Windows XP and Windows 2003, the protections were not as complete as uh, they became uh, with Windows Vista in 2008. Uh, with uh, 2008, almost all of the, prote all of the protections uh, that we will be discussing are fully implemented and active to the greatest extent possible. Um, an important thing to take away from this slide is that the protections have been improving uh, over the last five years or so, and we do expect them to improve uh, even more 
with the future releases of uh, Windows. So this is definitely not, not a static area. Um, there, will be, uh, there will be a lot more research uh, that can be done in the future as these protections improve and uh, perhaps the techniques to bypass them improve as well. Uh, next slide. So there are two kinds of memory protections uh, that we'll be discussing. Um, there, there are two approaches to preventing exploitation. Uh, the first kind are protections that try to detect memory corruption as it happens and typically terminate the program or terminate the functionality of the program that can be used to exploit it. These include uh, GS, ACH, heap corruption detection. Uh, we will explain exactly what they are uh, with greater detail uh, in the next few slides. The other category of protections try to stop common exploitation patterns. Uh, these protections are specifically targeting um, exploitation techniques that have been popular with the exploit developers. Um, these include GS, uh, Safe SEHDP, and ASLR. Uh, the important thing about the second category is that uh, these protections are heavily dependent on the specific techniques being used to exploit memory corruption. So if we can, if we can invent some new techniques, uh, we will be able to bypass the techniques, the, the protections from the second category. Next slide. So let's start with the GS stack cookies. GS is a compiler option available in the Visual Studio compiler, uh, starting with Visual Studio 2003. It works by, when, when you compile code with this option enabled, the compiler adds a stack cookie between the local variables of the function and the return address. The value of this cookie is random, and it is checked at the end of the function, right before it returns. If an attacker is exploiting a buffer overflow and overrides that cookie, they will not be able to use the overwritten return address because the stack cookie check at the end of the function will terminate the program before the overwritten return address is used. Next slide, please. Okay. Uh, one, of the, one of the potential weaknesses of uh, the stack cookie check is that it is only done at the end of the function. So if the program uses some of the overwritten stack data before it returns, the attacker could still potentially uh, exploit it. To minimize the chance of this, the Visual Studio compiler reorders the variable in the local stack frame. It puts the stack buffers at the bottom of the stack frame, ensuring that uh, uh, stack buffer overflow cannot modify, cannot override any other variables um, before it overrides the stack cookie. And on the example on the slide, you can see that the variable i uh, has been moved above the buffer. So an overflow of the buffer variable can only override the stack cookie uh, and the values below it. But the stack cookie check will prevent the attacker from uh, being able to exploit this function. Next slide, please.
Another exploitation protection is uh, safe SEH. This is also an uh, option in the Visual Studio compiler. Uh, it's actually a linker option. Uh, when you compile code with this option, the compiler puts a table of all valid exploitation handlers uh, inside the file that it produces. When an exception happens in the program, the exception handler dispatcher checks whether, this, uh, whether the exception is found in this table. And it only executes uh, exception handlers that are found in the table. This prevents the attacker from overriding uh, an exception handler record and pointing it to a different point place in the program. Uh, however, if DEP is disabled, we'll cover DEP in, a future, in, a, in, a, in the next slide. If DEP is disabled, the attacker can also point an exception handler to the heap. Uh, and this will become important for uh, one of the exploitation techniques we will present. Next slide. An additional protection for the SEH uh, exception records is the SEH chain validation, which was introduced with Windows Server 2008. Uh, it is much more effective than uh, safe SEH, uh, and it works by actually validating the linked list of exception handler records. Uh, you can read more about it in our you can read more details about it in our paper. Um, it is not really important as of yet because it is uh, only active in Windows Server 2008. Uh, the code is also present in Vista Service Pack 1, but it is disabled by default because of uh, some compatibility problems. So uh, you don't have to worry about it when uh, exploiting client machines, which are going to be running XP or Windows Vista and not Windows Server. Next slide. The data execution prevention protection mechanism uh, is another one that's uh, fairly effective at stopping exploits. The goal of this mechanism is to prevent the attacker from executing code that they have injected into a program. Uh, it works by taking advantage of the NX bit in modern CPUs. Uh, all of the memory that is not supposed to contain code, which means the heap, the stack, various other uh, memory mapped files, will be marked non-executable. And if the attacker tries to jump to one of those areas, uh, the program will raise an exception. There are different modes in which this protection can operate. In the default mode on XP and Vista called opt-out mode, uh, sorry, opt-in mode, only programs that have specifically opted in having this protection will have the DEP protection. Uh, one interesting thing is that Internet Explorer by default does not have this uh, protection enabled. And if you're running in the standard opt-in mode, Internet Explorer will not actually have DEP protection. Uh, this is, again, for compatibility reasons. Uh, there are a lot of third-party plugins that are uh, used to crash and have other problems if you try to run Internet Explorer with DEP turned on. Next slide, please. Uh, the DP protection can also be uh, turned on and off at a runtime, and this was used for uh, an attack that Scape and Skywink uh, invented. Uh, this attack was a return to Lipsy attack that jumped into the 
function that turns off DEP. Uh, to prevent this attack in Vista, there is a new bit called permanent DEP, which can be set in a program. And once that bit is set, the DEP status cannot be changed um, during the lifetime of the program. And an important thing to realize about DEP, an important weakness that we will exploit, is that DEP does not prevent the program from allocating uh, memory that is readable, writable, and executable if the program explicitly requests this kind of memory by setting the right page protection uh, bits in the virtual alloc function. Next slide, please. So the next, uh, the next protection that we'll discuss is ASLR, which stands for Address Space Layout Randomization. Uh, this protection is of the kind that targets a specific technique used by exploit developers. And the technique here is hard coding specific addresses into the exploit. Uh, to prevent this, uh, ASLR randomizes the locations of everything in the address space. Uh, it randomizes the locations of executables, libraries, the base address of the heap, stack, and other elements like the P, other data structures like the PEB and the TEB. Next slide, please. If uh, all of these protections, uh, if, if all of these data structures in memory, uh, all of these mappings are randomized, then the attacker will be prevented from referring to any of that data by hard coding its address. And we will discuss. Um, next slide, please. We will discuss the specific address ranges where the different uh, elements are placed. For example, um, executables are always placed within plus minus eight megabytes of their preferred image base. Uh, the randomization cannot be completely uh, cannot be completely random because that will cause too much address space fragmentation. So that's why the executables are not loaded at a completely random address in memory. Uh, they're still loaded close to their image base, but with enough bits that are random in the address to prevent the attacker from uh, reliably guessing the address of the executable. System DLLs are loaded into the so-called standard DLL range. Uh, which is from address uh, 5000000 to 780000. Uh, the loading of the DLLs uh, starts with the first DLL being loaded, which is usually anti-DLL.dll. Uh, and then DLL is loaded at the top of that range uh, with a random amount of padding, uh, which is again uh, up to 16 megabytes. After the first DLL is loaded, all the other DLLs are loaded right under it uh, without any padding between them. Uh, this is, again, to maximize the utilization of the address space and prevent fragmentation. Since the first DLL was uh, loaded with a random padding of uh, up to 16 megabytes, this means that all the other DLLs will also be shifted by up to 16 megabytes. Next slide.
So for, uh, for the heap and the stack, the randomization used is uh, a little bit different than for uh, the executables and libraries. The heap is randomized by uh, shifting its image, its base uh, by up to two megabytes. Uh, it is an, an, an interesting thing to note is that the heap is uh, still aligned at a 64K uh, boundary. However, the exact location of, uh, of the image base is shifted by a little bit. The stack is randomized by uh, picking a random hole into the address space where to place the stack. Uh, this random hole is picked by choosing a random number, uh, a five-bit random number, and then searching for uh, that many holes and picking the last one as the location of the stack. This makes the uh, stack location a little bit hard to predict, um, but not in all cases. And we will discuss uh, some of those more interesting cases uh, later. Uh, after a hole has been picked for the stack, the stack the, the starting address of the stack is also randomized um, by choosing a random offset within the page where it starts. So basically the stack is uh, randomized on a four byte boundary. Next slide, please. So uh, after, after this discussion, uh, the girls became uh, a little bit more interested, uh, but still not too much. And uh, on the picture here, you can see uh, you can see Mark, uh, my co-presenter, um, explaining to them how the stack works. And uh, perhaps they will get a little bit more interested when we get into the uh, more interesting stuff on the next slides. So next slide, please. Now that we have uh, now that we have discussed how these protections work, it is time to look into what their weaknesses are and how these weaknesses can be exploited. Uh, we'll focus in particular on browser exploitation because the browser allows a lot of different uh, a lo the browser allows a lot of different plugins uh, to be loaded into its process, uh, and it gives the attacker a lot more flexibility. So next slide, please. So let's talk about how we can bypass GS. Um, GS being the first protection that we discussed. Uh, GS does have some limitations, most of them because of the performance impact of adding stack cookies to functions. These, um, th this performance impact is uh, pretty, pretty big. And in our testing, we showed that there is a up to 44% uh, performance impact in the worst case. So to minimize that performance impact, uh, the compiler does not put a stack cookie in every function. Uh, it only puts cookies in functions that are determined to be at a greater risk of uh, being exploited. And the compiler defines these functions as functions that use strength buffers, um, functions that use string buffers, or some specific types of memory allocation, like the alloc A function. Uh, this means that other types, of, uh, other types of arrays, for example, arrays of pointers or integers, uh, are not 
considered uh, that risky because they're not string buffers and they're not protected by GS. Uh, we have one example here on the slide uh, where we have a buffer overflow in an array of integers. And if you compile this uh, function with a Visual Studio compiler, you will see that it does not get the GS protection because arrays of integers are not considered strings. Uh, in most cases, uh, putting the stack cookie check on functions that have strings will prevent, uh, will prevent most vulnerabilities from being exploited. But you can still find the occasional vulnerability that occurs in a data structure or an array that is not protected. Uh, a good example of that was the ANI vulnerability uh, from two years ago, which was in a structure that, is, was, not, that was not protected by uh, the GS protection. Next slide, please. Right. So another problem with GS is, uh, as we mentioned previously, is that the stack cookie is not checked until the function returns. If the function uses some of the data before uh, it ends, uh, and the attacker can override this data, then the attacker can possibly exploit the function. Uh, on the slide, we have a diagram that shows the location of different data in the, um, in, in, in the stack frame. We see the uh, string buffers where the overflow typically starts. And then below them, we see the data that can be overwritten. The interesting things that we can override are marked with red. Uh, these include the exception handler records, the arguments of the program, and the stack frame of the caller. The stack frame, is, the stack frame of the caller is particularly interesting because uh, this is where a lot of other data, including function pointers and object pointers, can be located. And if our function is being passed, uh, some if our function is being passed a reference to an object and the stack frame of its caller, uh, we'll be able to overwrite uh, that entire object, including all the pointers in it. This will allow us to uh, either take control of the function directly or perhaps cause an exception by dereferencing an invalid pointer. Uh, next slide, please. So if we can override, uh, if we can, if we can override an exception handler record on the stack and trigger an exception before the function returns and the stack cookie check happens, we might be able to uh, exploit the function and take control by uh, jumping to some other place in memory where our shell code is. Uh, these ACH records are not protected by GS, but Safe, the safe ACH protection is designed to stop this type of exploitation. So to bypass GS with uh, the exception handling attack, we will need to be able to bypass safe ACH as well. Next slide, please. Um, bypassing safe ACH is possible uh, using something we call an opt-in attack. And this, this general type of attack is also possible against DEP and ASLR. So we'll discuss all of those protections together. Next slide.
we can bypass safe SEH by taking advantage of the fact that safe SEH is only effective if the DLL or executable in question has been compiled with uh, the safe SEH option. If it hasn't been, uh, then we will be able to jump to any place within that DLL and the exception handling dispatcher will not stop us. If uh, DP is disabled, we'll be able to jump to the heap as well. So this makes it very easy to uh, exploit vulnerabilities when DP is not present because we can very easily put our code on a heap uh, which will be executable since we have no DP. And then we'll be able to use an ACH handler to jump to the heap. If DP is enabled, it's a little bit difficult, diff more difficult because we cannot execute code on the heap. However, uh, if we have any DLL that is not compiled with safe SEH, we will be able to jump to it. And one of these DLLs uh, that is present on uh, the majority of systems out there is flash9.ocx, which is the DLL used by the Flash plugin. Uh, for some reason, uh, Adobe is still not uh, compiling Flash with um, the safe ACH linker flag. And because of that, the uh, security of the uh, browser can be compromised. Uh, the good news is that in the next version of Flash, uh, Flash 10, they will, they will use these protections. But uh, currently in Flash 9, they're not utilized. Next slide, please. So we can apply the same kind of uh, same kind of attack against DP. DP is only effective if it is turned on, obviously. And by default, it is not turned on for Internet Explorer uh, nor Firefox 2, uh, even when even when you're running on Vista. In Internet Explorer 8 and Firefox 3, the DP uh, DP is turned on. So to exploit those browsers, we'll need to use slightly more advanced techniques. Next slide. Um, SLR is also uh, not turned on by default. Uh, it, is also, it is only turned on for binaries that specifically opt in into SLR. This again is done for compatibility reasons. Uh, Microsoft just did not want to break old applications that might not be compatible with the randomization. Um, because this uh, compatibility check is done uh, on a profile basis, if we, if we have a DLL that is not uh, compiled with a specific option to enable SLR, that DLL will always be loaded in the same place in memory. Uh, in current browsers, this, in, this includes the Flash, uh, Java plugins, and the .NET runtime, which is uh, very interesting because .NET is written by Microsoft and is included by default with Windows Vista. Uh, it is surprising that they're not utilizing SLR for their own code. Um, so the presence of .NET and the fact that .NET is enabled by default uh, allows us to use .NET and bypass uh, ASLR with it. Next slide, please. The next technique that we're going to discuss is heap spraying. Uh, heap spraying has been known for uh, a number of years. 
Uh, it is typically done in JavaScript uh, where it is useful for bypassing SLR or just making exploits more reliable. But uh, we discovered that it is also possible to do it in Java where uh, it can be used to bypass both ASLR and DP. Next slide, please. Um, heap spraying is uh, very useful against ASLR uh, because it makes the exploit not depend on a specific hard-coded address. Uh, heap spraying works by allocating large chunks of memory and filling them with uh, shell code or some other kind of data that the exploit needs to use. By using large amounts of memory, uh, it doesn't matter where the allocations begin. For example, the, in Windows Vista, the heap is randomized by up to 2 megabytes. This means that if we allocate a chunk greater than 2 megabytes, uh, regardless of where, whether that chunk starts, uh, we will always have our data at address 3 megabytes. Uh, you can see this on the diagram where we have two different chunks with uh, different offsets in the beginning. And the 3 megabyte address always points at data that we control. Next slide, please. Um, in JavaScript, uh, this can be easily done by allocating strings uh, long strings. Um, if we use very long strings, for example, one megabyte, then the, Java, the JavaScript allocator has the interesting property that the strings are 64K aligned, uh, which gives us the ability to put uh, a number of different bytes at a specific address. And we have this discussed in, a more, uh, in more detail in the paper, and we have some sample code that uh, shows exactly how that works. Next slide, please. Um, we also discovered that uh, this can be done in Java, also by allocating strings. Uh, in fact, the sample code that we have here looks almost exactly the same as the typical JavaScript code before because the syntax is very similar. Um, an additional extra bonus that we get with Java is that the Sun virtual machine allocates all memory executable, uh, not just the memory that it needs for its JIT compiler, but also memory for string data. Um, this means that if we do heap spraying in Java, we will get memory that not only bypasses ASLR, but also is executable, and we can use it to bypass the EP. Next slide. Um, here we have a little screenshot of uh, a memory allocation that we did using Java, and we can see that it is uh, both readable, writable, and executable. Next slide. Uh, stack spraying is an interesting new technique that uh, Mark discovered. Um, unfortunately, he's not here to describe it, but uh, I'll try to do my best. Uh, stack spraying is similar to heap spraying because it allows us to put um, a large amount of data that we control uh, in memory. And it allows us to bypass uh, SLR by not having to care exactly where in memory our data starts as long as the amount of data is uh, large enough. Uh, we can do a lot of the same things that we can do with heap spraying, uh, such as 
filling the address space with some shell code. It would jump to uh, putting some data that our exports will use. Um, but in addition, uh, we can have pointers to code uh, the return addresses on the stack that we can overwrite. And uh, I'll discuss this in a little bit more detail. Uh, next slide. It turns out that in Java, both Java and .NET, you can create an arbitrary number of new stacks by creating new threads. And the size of these stacks that are allocated can also be controlled by the attacker because the thread constructors in Java.NET, these are the constructors for the thread objects, accept a parameter that specifies the initial size of the stack. And if we set this uh, size to 100 megabytes, then the system will allocate 100 megabytes of memory for our stack. Using recursive functions, we will be able to fill that 100 megabytes of memory with uh, any kind of data that we want. Next slide. Uh, the, specific, uh, the specific exploitation techniques uh, that use StackSpring would be to, um, number one, uh, create a large amount of uh, pointers uh, that we can overwrite. Uh, this allows us to exploit uh, vulnerabilities that allow us to do arbitrary four-byte overwrite by providing a target for these overwrites. Um, the, saved EI, the, the saved return addresses that will be located on the stack uh, are very useful for that. Uh, we can also uh, just generate shell code and place it in the memory. Um, DEP will typically prevent us from using this kind of shell code, but again, this is similar to uh, heap spraying. Next slide. Uh, here we have a diagram that shows the stack layout in .NET and in Java. And you can see that in .NET, uh, every second D word on the stack will be a safe return address. Uh, this means that if we target an arbitrary uh, address within that memory region, uh, we have a 50% chance of overriding a return address. And this, uh, this, this allows us to do uh, fairly reliable exploitation of browser exploits. 50% is not that bad uh, when you're doing exploitation on a large scale. Next slide. Uh, finally, we can use StackSpring to create uh, a large number of pointers to data that has a specific structure. For example, we might have a vulnerability, uh, the exploitation of which requires us to have a pointer that points to an array of other pointers. Um, by utilizing the data structures that uh, the runtime, the Java or the .NET runtime uses, uh, we might be able to create pointers to specific data structures uh, that have an interesting, an interesting and useful format. Uh, this is very vulnerability specific, and it's also, uh, it also depends on the exact runtime that we're going to use and the exact way it organizes its memory. But it is a possibility. Next slide. Um, so what happens with uh, SLR? If we don't have SLR, then stack spraying is very easy because the stack will uh, 
always end up at the same location. But if we do have ASLR, uh, it will be randomized. To defeat the randomization, we can create a very large, uh, very large stack. Um, a few hundred megabytes would be a good size. Since uh, that stack is very large, the search for uh, the search for different holes will fail, and the stack will end up being allocated always at the same uh, or approximately the same address. Uh, and since the stack is uh, very large, uh, it doesn't matter exactly where it's allocated as long as it's in within a known range, and we can get a known range by using a large stack. Uh, in our paper, we describe this uh, with more details, and there are a few more diagrams that show different cases. Next slide. So uh, as you can see, uh, after telling the girls about stack spraying, they were definitely a lot more impressed uh, than before. But this is not all. Next slide. Um, we discovered one more exploitation technique, uh, which is uh, so great that it makes all the previous exploitation techniques just child's play. Um, it turns out that the .NET runtime allows us to load arbitrary code marked executable at an arbitrary location. This is a uh, very, very powerful attack. Um, this is done by using .NET DLLs. Uh, these are the standard, .NET, um, the standard .NET assemblies that contain .NET code. But for convenience, uh, Microsoft reused the same file format that they use for files containing native code. So the .NET objects that you can load into the browser are actually uh, standard PE. Uh, PE executables. Uh, of course, they do not contain any native code, and when the .NET runtime loads them, it verifies that uh, they don't have any native code, because .NET does try to ensure that it only runs safe uh, IL code, uh, which can be verified to be safe. But it still loads that initial uh, PE file using standard load library code. Uh, load library call. Next slide. Since we're loading a uh, standard P file into .NET, uh, in, into the Internet Explorer process, uh, we can specify the image base where that file will get loaded. We can specify the number and sizes of the different memory sections uh, inside the, that P file and the loader will uh, map them with the specific parameters that we specified. We can also specify the memory protection, uh, the, the, the protection bits for those specific regions. So for example, we can create a text section that contains uh, executable code and is marked executable and has a specific size and is loaded at a specific, uh, at a specific address. Uh, on XP, uh, this is very easy to do, and it doesn't take any trickery whatsoever. On Windows Vista, uh, we can map executable text sections, but 
ASLR does randomize the location of uh, the file that we're loading. So we cannot directly predict uh, where our section will be loaded. Next slide. So to defeat this uh, on Vista, we have a number of different methods. Um, the first one is to create a large DLL, which uh, will be loaded at approximately the same location. And since the DLL is large, we can use uh, we we can target any address that falls within that DLL and get our code execution. Next next uh, slide. If our DLL is larger than uh, about 100 megabytes, uh, it will get loaded at a plus minus 8 megabytes from its image base. That also gives us a very easily predictable range where we'll find our uh, shellcode. Next address. Sorry, next slide. Um, since the DLL will be very large, uh, we need to use some techniques to uh, compress it and make the download that the browser needs to do much smaller. We can do this by either compressing the DLL with uh, gzip or by creating a section that has a very small uh, amount of real data but a very large virtual size. Um, this is also pretty easy to do and pretty effective. Next slide. Uh, and also, um, if we do want to use a small DLL, uh, we can use a large DLL first that takes up the standard DLL range. And any small DLL that is loaded after that uh, will be loaded at a uh, plus, minus, uh, plus minus 8 megabytes from its uh, specified image base. Next slide. And finally, uh, if, we don't, if we don't want to use large DLLs at all, we can just load a number of small DLLs, uh, about 300 of them, for example, uh, which, will all, which will all get placed on 64K boundaries and we'll be able to target any one of them. Now, this is very similar to the heap spray attack. Next, next slide. Um, so all these techniques, uh, that rely on guessing the memory range are uh, pretty good. But uh, there, there, there is one more technique that we came up with uh, that makes all of them completely unnecessary. Um, at first, we tried to make ASLR not randomize the location of our DLL by not including the flag in the P file that makes the DLL compatible with ASLR. So basically, we try to make our .NET DLL not compatible with ASLR. This failed because the .NET loader uh, checks, it has a specific check for .NET files. And if this is a .NET file, then it gets randomizes, randomized regardless of what its uh, compatibility bit says. Next slide. However, uh, Mark found out that uh, the specific check that the Windows loader uses is faulty. And it relies on the .NET DLL having a runtime version of 2.5 or greater. If we change 
with the .NET version to 2.4 or any other smaller number, then the .NET DLL will not get randomized. Uh, it turns out that the .NET framework doesn't really care about, the, about that specific version. So a .NET DLL with version 2.4 will still work just as well, but we'll be able to specify the image, the image base explicitly on Vista just like we can on XP. Next slide. And uh, as you can see, uh, after we described the uh, .NET uh, attack, the uh, things just got crazy. And uh, you can see Mark there uh, being very confused uh, or, uh, and happy. Um, so this is, this is definitely impressive. Uh, next slide. Next slide. So in conclusion, what we showed uh, in our paper and in this presentation is that these memory protections are uh, not very good or not good at all at preventing the exploitation of browser vulnerabilities. And this is for three main reasons. Um, the first one is that um, browsers give the attacker a lot more control over what happens in the program uh, than typical server applications. A mail server, for example, just takes some email and sends it to whatever it needs to be sent. It doesn't really do much more than that. Whereas modern browsers have very complicated rendering mechanisms. Uh, they allow the loading of pretty much unlimited amounts of attacker-specified data into the address space. Um, they have multiple execution environments uh, for JavaScript, VBScript, Java, .NET, multiple runtimes. Uh, all this allows the attacker to, uh, to, to have a lot more control over uh, what happens inside the process. The open plugin architecture is also a problem for modern browsers because it makes the browsers reliant on the security of the third-party plugins, which are typically not controlled by the browser vendor. For example, uh, Microsoft did a fairly good job at securing their own code, um, the .NET runtime excluded. Uh, but even if you have the .NET runtime disabled, uh, as long as you have Flash uh, and Java loaded into your browser, which um, you know, the majority of people in, in the internet have, uh, your, the, the exploitation of any vulnerability in the browser will still be possible through those two plugins. Uh, and finally, because the browser loads all of these different components and plugins into the same process, uh, it creates a single point of failure. So a protection bypass in any of those plugins, in any of those components, will allow the exploitation of any other vulnerability in the browser, regardless of where it is. Uh, one good development here is uh, the, uh, the, the, the release of Google Chrome, which uh, has a very interesting new architecture uh, for browsers that relies on having different isolated sandboxes for uh, different components of the browser. Uh, so for example, the plugins are not being run in the same process as the HTML renderer and the JavaScript engine. Um, they're 
their architecture can probably be improved further, but it's still, uh, I believe, a uh, step in the right direction and a potential way to address the vulnerabilities that we described in this paper. So more work is needed uh, on securing browsers. And with this, uh, I'll hand it over to Steve Paul. Uh, Great. Well, thank you very much, Alex, for an excellent presentation. And as we begin with today's Q&A, we'd like to ask the audience to help fill out a feedback form that has now opened on your computer. To complete this form, please press the Submit Answer button at the bottom of the page. And thanks in advance for filling out this form. Your participation in this survey will allow us to serve you better in the future. And now on to the question and answer portion of our event. As a reminder, to participate in the Q&A, just type your question into the Ask a Question text area and then click the Submit button. And it looks like we do have time for a few questions here, a couple of good ones. Uh, one is from Pierre. He would like to know, uh, what about Google Chrome security? Uh, I, think I, just, uh, I think I just mentioned uh, Google Chrome in the conclusion. Uh, I do believe that the architecture of uh, Google Chrome uh, is better than the architecture of the other browsers that we have. Um, the work that they have done on process separation, sandboxes, and process isolation is uh, definitely a step in the right direction. Um, I'm not yet confident enough in their particular in their particular implementation of uh, this architecture, but I do believe that architecturally their design is uh, better than what we have now. Great. We have a question here from Lawrence. Uh, is DEP enabled on Firefox? Uh, it is enabled on the Firefox 3, but not Firefox 2. Now, if you do want to uh, enable it yourself, um, this, is, this is by default, but if you do want to enable it yourself, uh, you can go to the System Properties and Control Panel and change uh, DEP to Opt-Out, which means that all applications will run with DEP unless uh, unless they're specifically listed as uh, not compatible. And uh, for most applications, this is not a problem. I have been running my system in this mode for years now, and I uh, haven't really had any problems with it. But you know, compatibility issues could arise. Another question here, this one from, uh, from Bugs. How can security prevent exploitation and yet let the end user have a rich web experience too? Uh, well, I think the, the process isolation and sandboxing approach uh, is one potential way to do that. Uh, there is nothing inherently wrong with uh, having plugins uh, in your browser, plugins like Flash, Java.net. Uh, but I think steps need to be taken to make sure that these plugins are isolated enough um, from the other components of the browser so that the presence of the plugins does not weaken uh, the other plugins. Now, practically, uh, there's not really anything that uh, users can do at this point. Um, so uh, I strongly recommend uh, running your browser uh, in, in a virtual machine on perhaps on a, on a, separate, on a separate hardware. Um, so even if it gets exploited, the attacker will not get access to uh, the important data that you have in your machine. Great. We just want to also uh, have a few messages for the uh, for the audience. 
If you'd like to um, to join the mailing list to receive advance notice of these webcasts, uh, just drop us a line at subscribe-webcasts at blackhat.com, and you can also follow us online uh, on Twitter at twitter.com slash blackhatusa2008. Um, and we're going to open up a window and um, push that out to the audience, so if you want to just keep uh, that and bookmark it. Uh, if you have suggestions on how, to, um, how you'd like to see this material shared or topics in the future, uh, please let us know at Darrington at BlackHat.com. And it uh, looks like we do have time for one more quick question here. Uh, how do we enable SEH in Vista SP1? Uh, you're probably asking about the SEH chain validation that I mentioned. Um, the code is present in Vista SP1, but is not enabled by default. Uh, in our paper, um, I, I, I list the special registry key that you need to set, which enables that protection. So if you look at the paper, you'll find that uh, you'll find that registry key. Um, now, I have spoken to Microsoft about that, and uh, there are a number of uh, applications that are incompatible with uh, this protection. And if you enable if you enable the protection, you'll probably run into these compatibility. Uh, problems. Uh, this is the reason why they have not enabled it on Vista. Um, I know for I, I know that one of these applications is uh, Sigwin. So if you're using Sigwin or any Sigwin programs, they will not work uh, with that protection enabled. But uh, feel free to uh, try it out, and perhaps it'll work out for you. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Alex, and thank you all for attending today's Black Hat webcast brought to you by Black Hat and United Business Media, LLC. Shortly after this live event, you can access this presentation on demand. Uh, any questions that were not answered during this live broadcast, uh, someone will follow up with you in the next few business days. And uh, as a reminder, this webcast is copyright 2008 by United Business Media, LLC. Presentation materials are owned by or copyright, if that is the case, by Black Hat and United Business Media, LLC, who are solely responsible for its content, and the individual speakers are solely responsible for their content and their opinions. And on behalf of our, behalf of our guest, Alexander Sotoroff, I'm Steve Paul. Thanks for your time, and have a great day.